May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. What would you do if you won the super-duper, mega-millions-whatever-it's-called lottery? This isn't the first time you've thought about that, is it? I mean, this has been a thought that you've had before. Imagine you wake up one day, you get in your car, you, you're heading off to wherever you're going to work or whatever, about your day's task. You stop at the filling station to get some, um, some fuel and some uh, coffee. You go in and, and you get your coffee and your Danish and, and you, you think about it. You heard it on the radio a few minutes ago and you just like, I'm going to do it. And you, and you buy this ticket. And the, the clerk gives you your coffee and your Danish in a plastic wrapper and a piece of paper with numbers all over it. And you walk out that door. And as you're walking out that door, you have almost two simultaneous thoughts. They're probably rapid fire, not simultaneous. But the first one goes like this. No way I'm ever going to win this. And the second one, right behind it. But what if I did? Right. But what if I did? And that second thought makes that first thought die a quick death, you know, and it just takes over. What if I won this? Most people have had this thought. Maybe you were born enormously wealthy and you never had this thought. If you didn't have it about money, you had about something else. You know, what if she or he says yes? What if I win the election? What if I learn how to make grilled cheese? I mean, something you thought about, you know, everybody has this thought. What if? And for a lot of people, what if I hit the millions and millions of dollars and became enormously, independently wealthy? I know people who won't even play the lottery because of religious reasons who will tell me, oh, but if I had and if I won, and they've even thought about it. They've contemplated this. For a goodly number of souls that I've talked to about such an idea, most of them say this. Come Monday morning... I'm going into work, I'm going into the boss's office, and I'm telling her, no more, I'm out of here. It's usually with more colorful language than that, but I'm in a pulpit, so I can't really tell you what I usually hear, but it's, I'm out of here, I'm done, I'm, take this job and shove it, I'm on my way out. I have to be honest with you, that would not be the case with me, it wouldn't be. I would renegotiate our terms. <laughs> I'm just saying, you might not see me a lot during January, and I might be like the presidents and take August off as well, but, you know, you'd, you'd get a solid nine months still out of me. I'd be, uh, I'd be around. I'd be pretty, pretty regular. It got me to thinking about people who wouldn't, you know, who, people, you know, other than Anglican clergymen, who would, who would discontinue to go on about their jobs, you know, who would have these great jobs. And, and, and one of the great jobs, like, I always thought this was one of the greatest, just behind, behind, behind being an Anglican clergyman, is this guy, um, the late Anthony Bourdain. Do you remember this Parts Unknown on CNN? He got to fly all over the world on somebody else's dime and eat the best food. And drink the best wines and beers and all this best prepared foods. And it, everywhere he got to go, it was wonderful. Um, he, unfortunately, he committed suicide. So even that wasn't enough to bring satisfaction and meaning. But then I thought about the other side of the coin. You know, people who not just have difficult or mundane jobs. But what about the people who have truly awful jobs? I mean, truly Terrible occupations. 
Um, there was another show on television a number of years ago, maybe it's still on, I don't know, called Dirty Jobs. You remember this? This fellow, Mike Rowe, would go all over the world and he would do the actual worst jobs on the planet. I, I found this top ten list this week. Um, here are a few of them. Concrete chipper. <laughs> okay? You know those big concrete trucks that deliver concrete wherever? It seems at the end of every day that while they're out spinning around, you know, keeping that concrete stirred, even though they're doing that, there's a layer of concrete that builds up inside the drum on the, t the truck every day. And so at the very end of the day, it goes in and there's a fellow or, or maybe a lady who climbed into this big drum. It's a really small hole to get in through. And, and then they have a jackhammer and they have to jackhammer like all kinds of concrete off of the edge of this drum. He, Micro says, concrete chippers crawl into unspeakably claustrophobic environments and slowly chip the concrete away. It's dusty, dirty, back-breaking work. Snake researcher. People who, um, who are researching what water snakes eat in Lake Erie. And so he goes out with them and they capture all these water snakes. And he says, you squeeze them until they vomit what they've eaten. And then they inspect the food. It's as disgusting as it sounds, he wrote. But on this day in question, to add to the excitement, I was bitten no less than three dozen times. Annoying, bloody, and very dirty. But all of that just sets you up for the worst. The worst job Sewer Inspector. Oh, my word. I read the title and I was cringing. Sewer Inspector, he, he writes, I have to read this whole thing, aside from sloshing through a relentless chocolate tide, inspectors encounter a myriad of man-made products that shouldn't be flushed down toilets, along with roaches the size of thumbs and rats the size of bread loaves. It's hot, dirty, and too smelly to describe. I got to wondering, I wonder how many lottery tickets are sold to sewer inspectors alone. You know, I mean, they must have a line of people that are out there. There's that old adage, you know, it's a dirty job, but somebody's got to do it. In the gospel lesson today, we encounter somebody else at work putting in a day's labor. His name, John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He's a preacher. Um, Bible scholars would call him a prophet. Um, but he really is a preacher, not like a parish rector or like me. He's an itinerant preacher, and he's not really officially connected to the institution. He's not licensed or ordained. He's not set apart. He, he, he just sort of what they would call self-appointed. He would call himself God-called, that he goes out into the countryside and he preaches. And he's an idealist preacher. He's like the prophets of Israel. He's, um, he, he's an itinerant. He goes from place to place. He's no nonsense. He gives up everything. Every worldly uh, comfort he gives up to do this. He knows that he is God's messenger in the world. He knows what he's to do. He's to call people to repentance, to get them ready for the coming of the Messiah. His job was a bit of a dirty job because this is what he had to do. He was the cleanup man. Get things ready. You know how it is when Aunt Margaret or Uncle Preston, or whoever it is in your family is coming to visit? Do you know that person? You know who I'm talking about? The one who shows up with white gloves and inspects, you know, always has the sort of passive-aggressive comment? 
Oh, you still have poinsettias out in February? That's unusual, you know, something like that. Those are the drapes. I see that sort of person. You know what happens when they're coming, when you, when you know they're coming? It's all hands on deck, isn't it? <laughs> okay, everybody, we've got work to do. This place has to be spick and span. We've got to get ready. That's John. He's the house cleaner. Only he's not like cleaning up physical dirt. He's cleaning up spiritual dirt, moral dirt. And so his sermon is the same. Repent, be baptized, and then go forth in this place living like you've changed. And there's a tail end because there's someone coming after me. And he'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. Judgment is coming. You better get ready. Time to, time to change. He has this dirty job. Get, ready, get the world ready for the coming of the Messiah. Clean up lives. And Matthew's Gospel today takes us to John, who's out doing this work. He's out doing the same sort of thing he does all the time. And Jesus shows up. I imagine a lot of people there to, to get baptized that day. John is doing one after another. And I imagine Jesus quietly just getting in line with all the rest. And he moves to the front of the line when it's his turn. And he walks down into the water, into the Jordan, where John is standing there baptizing people. And he presents himself. John says, wait a minute. You see, he's a prophet. And so he has two real spiritual gifts. One is to preach clearly. To preach without reservation about what's going on in the world. And the second is to see the world with God's eyes. Everybody else sees Jesus as just some ordinary dude. Just some common fellow who's walking down the street. But not John. He knows who Jesus is. He is not just some ordinary fellow. He's the one. He's the Messiah. He's the one that John has been getting everybody ready to meet. This is the very one that Isaiah in chapter 42 of today's lesson was, was predicting would come. This is him. Here's the one we've been waiting for. John realizes it. He sees it. But he's not prepared for what happens. Look, listen to the lesson. This is the very first verse uh, from the, the gospel lesson. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. John would have prevented him. Not my favorite translation, to be honest with you. Actually, not even close. <laughs> John was preventing him. It's sort of an ongoing action. You might even translate this. I think it would be a, 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 a valid way to do it. John was obstinately preventing him. He was working hard, and it wasn't just a one-off thing. It's this ongoing action. He was re refusing. He was obstinately refusing. He was, he, he was forceful in his refusal to do this. John, I wish to be baptized. No, I can't. John, I need you to baptize me. No, I cannot. I will not. John, you need to baptize me. It's the right thing to do. No, please don't ask me to do this. It's kind of all caught up in that one little pregnant verb. He was preventing him. See, John understood most of his vocation. He understood what he was supposed to do. I'm supposed to be a preacher. To be an authentic preacher in his case meant that I have to go live off the grid, live off the land. I've got to, um, I've got to you know, wear rags for clothes. I have to eat insects for food. Okay, this is the way I do things. I have to preach and, and call people to repentance. I'm good with that. 
But it had never occurred to him that the coming Messiah, the servant of the Lord, would present himself in humility to be baptized. And when John saw that, he couldn't do it. No, I won't. And it got me wondering, when is it okay to say no to God? No, I'm not going to do that. I think there are a lot of ways we want to say no, right? We definitely want to say no when it comes to pain and suffering. No, no, please, no. We know it's going to come our way, but we don't want it. We hate it when we see it in, in human cruelty or natural disasters. We want to say no when we feel like our love has been, has been rejected or when our best isn't good enough. But sometimes there are little, I don't know, nuanced ways in which God calls us to do things and we want to say no. No, I don't want to do that. Reminds me of this song by Meatloaf. I'd do anything for love, but I won't do that. And you've got to be at least 40 years old to get that one right there. You know, that I'll do anything, but not that. Where's your limit? Where's your no, not that? I'll serve you, Lord, as long as I don't have to work with the poor or the rich. I'll serve you as long as it doesn't mean changing my job or my address. I'll serve you as long as it doesn't cost me too much money or too much time. I'll serve you as long as I can say where and when and for how long. As long as I don't have to have too much time away from my spouse or my children or, or have to share attention. As long as I don't have to, um, to do anything that's really hard. As long as I can say no when I'm ready to say no. Discipleship is not like that. Discipleship is following Jesus with an unconditional yes. I will give you everything. It's writing a blank check for your life and giving it away. Yes, I'll do that. I'll do whatever you call me to do. See, like I said, John was prepared for everything. He was prepared to, to eat insects for his diet. He's prepared to live off a, you know, with no companionship or friendship, to be isolated and alone. He just wasn't prepared to baptize the Messiah. That's my limit. I can't do that. You know, our instincts are usually to say no. We're, we're kind of programmed to say no. Because no is safe. No is, um, no is, uh, is protection. It's, it's, uh, it's guarding ourselves. It's, it's, um, it's based in fear. It's self-preservation. No is, no is safe. It keeps the status quo. And it robs us of much of life. I read um, this week that, uh, that we hear the word no by the time we're adults 50,000 times. And yes, only 7,000. So like a 6 to 1, 7 to 1 ratio. So we grow up programmed to be no. I was reminded of this um, Seinfeld episode. Uh, this, I don't know if you, remember, if you ever watched Seinfeld, but there was this guy, George Costanza, who was 
constantly making bad decisions about his life all the time. Everything he did was the wrong thing. And he's sitting in a diner one day, and he's lamenting to his friend Jerry about how he always makes the wrong decision. And so Jerry says, well, you know, if every instinct you have is wrong, then just do the opposite. And so George goes about the whole rest of the episode doing the opposite of what George would normally do. And the first thing he does is he gets up at the diner, and he, he walks up to this attractive woman, and he says, hi, my name is George. I'm unemployed and I live with, I live with my parents. <laughs> and she is, you know, taken by this this uh, candor, his freshness, and and agrees to go out on a date with him. And and things look like they're going well for George. He just has to do the opposite. I know life isn't a sitcom. It's not. But it's true. Our instincts to say no are not always the right ones. Sometimes they are. Sometimes a no is the proper answer. But sometimes it's the yes to God that we really need to say. And look through Scripture. What do we have? We have Abraham who says yes to God. We have Moses who says yes to God. He doesn't want to, but he does. Isaiah, who will go for us? Whom shall we send? Here I am. Send me. I'll say yes to you. We've just come to the Christmas season. Mary, will you... Will you bring this baby into the world? Yes. Joseph, will you give this child a name? Yes. John, will you baptize me? And John consented. What is God calling you to say yes to? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.